Hey, welcome to the Bad Vibes Club. My name's Matt. Today's conversation is uh, with Revital Cohen and Turvan Barlin, two artists that I met a few years ago on a residency in London. And they, it's hard to describe what they do. They do so many different things, but a lot of their work is kind of really research heavy and really deals with the entangled global structures of capitalism and consumer goods and politics. Um, they've got a few things coming up or happening at the moment one is an exhibition called white horse twin horse and that's in amsterdam at de Bracca grand sorry for the pronunciation and a big thing actually is that they've they've just got the stanley picker fellowship so they'll be based down in kingston with a studio down there doing a long-term well a year-long project about gambling um which i really look forward to seeing what comes out of that our conversation was mainly about a film that they've been making over the past few years. The film's called Trapped in the Dream of the Other, and it's made in a coltan mine in the Congo. And Revital and Ter made a few trips out to the Congo over the past few years to shoot that. Just to say, I'm sure we mentioned it in the conversation, but coltan is a mineral that's in almost every single smartphone, iPad, PlayStation, laptop. So it's this kind of meeting point of a lot of a lot of the things they're interested in. Uh, we met in summer of this year and they brought Nico, who's their little baby, um, who makes a few vocal additions to the conversation. Um, we were speaking just after the general election in the UK, so there's a few references to that. It's a great conversation. Um, I really love speaking to these guys. I'm probably going to get them back in and we'll have a conversation about other work that they've done and other things. Um, yeah, hope you enjoy it. Um, I watched your film today. I watched the Vimeo, um, and then I read all the blog, and it was just so. It was just really lovely. Right. Thanks. It was really, really enjoyable. I really liked Thank the you. film, and it was just lovely to read the blog as well. I'm happy someone's reading it. <laughs> so, so I mean, I want to start with that just because it's quite interesting. But like, who's the blog for? Because it's private. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of started. Well, this is maybe the third or fourth one we're making. I think the first time we made it was for another work that we made that had like four different funders and we started it instead of just sending a com an email update to everybody all the time. Mm. And then we realized it's just so incredibly useful for just for ourselves because these projects, they sometimes take years to make and yeah. at year four, you kind of forgot why you even started. <laughs> you just don't even remember what was the point of it all and, and then somehow by keeping this, keeping all of this thing together you read back for yourself and you go like oh yeah this is what happened it's crazy because i get so i went right back to the start of the blog which is big but not i, I think i managed to go through the whole thing nice and the original proposal for the project what's the project called sorry trapped in the dream of the trapped other in the dream of the other yeah the first thing is a quote from Deleuze, which is if you're trapped in the dream of the other you're fucked yeah is that that so that's the original kind of um Ooh. <laughs> um, originally in French, so fucked might be translated <laughs> as screwed or uh, okay, I don't yeah. really know. It's hard to trace also actually that quote. Um, but yeah, that was, that's kind of like setting out, I guess, in the beginning of the blog a little bit, the premise of, of the work. Um, <laughs> you want to stand. Um, but I think... Maybe to come back to your question about who is it for, and then 
partly is that it's like, yeah, why is it private? Why is it behind mm, the password? Yeah. Maybe that's also got to do with the fact that for us, it became this dumping ground where we don't have to be too conscious of kind of what we're putting online. Um, partially so we just don't spend crafting too much kind yeah. of the language. But also in this case, sometimes because the information is a little bit sensitive. Like, for example, we went to Congo first time to do research in these mines, Colton mines in particular. And then some of these mines that we then got access to, sort of like we weren't really allowed to be there. So then, and then we were still using this blog sometimes to kind of show to other people to say like, look, this is what's going on. And I guess if we were a bit worried that if that would be spread too widely, then perhaps it would sort of backfire or something. Yeah, sure. Um, but then I guess now it's kind of this thing that's archive of which parts of which are kind of being made public through perhaps lectures or if we're asked to write something or mm. um, but it's a good question actually sometimes I do wonder if like perhaps we should sort of go through it and see if there's nothing sort of illegal on it and then maybe we could just open it all up or, yeah. um, well I think we were talking about we're doing this show in, in a couple of years which um, we're going to make a publication for kind of a big one so we thought of using these blogs just opening all these archives for mm. this publication so maybe everything is kind of together in one place. Yeah. It's because it's, it's so interesting because your practice is obviously so like heavily researched and long term. Mm. And then the, like the film is so contained and mm. kind of exact. It's like you can tell that there's a kind of particular thing you want to record and then you go out and do it. And so it's really interesting to kind of... But I, wanted, I watched the film before I read the blog because I didn't want to think about the film as just a kind of a cool. logical conclusion of the research or something but what was also really nice was that at some point in the blog it felt like you were kind of writing to each other or something so maybe uh, because yeah. you went on your so you went on your own mm. the second time to the Congo but, but also oh, the first time right? I stayed a little bit longer ah okay um, and I think I even sort of describe it in one of the texts so the first time I went a bit longer um Partially because you had to do something in... No, I'll tell you exactly why. Because I was still uh, in the middle of applying for um, British citizenship and my days out of the country were extremely numbered and I had to go back. <laughs> yeah, I just lost my days. So as in you have to stay in the country for a certain... No, you can't yeah, leave you, this You can leave the country, I think, for 150 days in like five years or something, which maybe for people don't travel much as... as totally easy because yeah. it's quite a lot of days still but for me I was, uh, I was eight days over at the end <laughs> it was kind of like on the edge so what happens when you're over well there's all these kind of other rules if you can prove it was for work and okay. you can prove that you lived here long enough it was fine but I didn't have this privilege of just going for a month somewhere yeah. just to see what's going to happen yeah so I went home early yeah you kind so of need that time in the Congo it seems from yeah. reading yeah, the blog that absolutely. You, you can't you plan ahead to. It's no. so like you have to plan everything ahead and then realize and that then the, and then you arrive like the there and then throw all of this planning out of the window. And then so that first time that I was there, um, I then made some trips out to the mines, which were a little bit further out of the place where we were staying, which is Goma, the provincial capital of North Kivu in the east of the country, which is a really, really dark place. Um, but to go out of it is also really hard because it's a very unstable situation. 
and like at the time also like infrastructure there's no infrastructure the roads are so bad that even with like a four by four you can't get everywhere so you need to go on the back of a motorbike and so it becomes like physically quite taxing to get to these places even and then on the way to the first mine like i think two days after Revdal had left and <clears throat> i was still there my phone broke like just i think from having it in my pocket um and i'd bought this this kind of smartphone especially because i i sort of wanted to try out filming on the smartphone and maybe making the whole work on this on this particular phone or on a smartphone <laughs> and then it broke after two days <laughs> which was kind of fine because it's research and the only thing i had left was an old film camera or a, like a stills camera with yeah. film but then i had to buy this like really shitty fake phone um and i was typing and then these kind of long reports on a fake samsung so some of the um, blog is written on so some of the yeah. phone. it's exactly that it was just emails me writing to Revta, which is kind of these reports of like how it went and how it was to get there and etc cetera, etc cetera. um so yeah some of that is just real conversations and what was the word in the blog it says this word for like a shitty bit Nwanzu. of technology nuanzu 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 is like yeah it's a beautiful thing nuanzu is um yeah. It both in Lingala and in Kiswahili, the two local languages in the east of Congo, and it means something of bad quality, um, something that doesn't last. So you can say it also about your boyfriend. Your boyfriend could be <laughs> one two when like he's not going to last, when you know that. But the beautiful thing about it is that that where it comes from, it comes from Guangzhou, Guangzhou, the city in like southeast China, where like much of the stuff that doesn't last in their eyes comes from, i.e. these kind of fake Samsung yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. phones. Um, and so, and obviously because also this work and much of our other works is so much kind of focused on this connection as well. And it's, mm. it's not, this is in some way, it's not a work about Congo or something. It's much more about this kind of connection between China and, and Africa and China and Congo and these supply chains and, and here also, yeah. like it's in many ways, like how Congo is all over the world and the whole world's all over Congo. And so we also spent some time at some point in Guangzhou, um, looking at these kind of hubs for African traders, um, uh, okay. uh, which is also so. Yeah, that that word is sort of summarized so beautifully. <laughs> Many of these these kind of uh, threads that are so beautifully entangled when you when you kind of find yourself either in in the east of Congo, in the middle of nowhere, or in southeast China. In this place that the Chinese called Chocolate City, which is uh, where yes, most oh. of the African trade is, <laughs> uh, which is like it's a really fun place. So uh, the African traders are taking over um, minerals and, and metals. No, or? this is just a place where they would um, no, because that's the Chinese traders. The oh, Chinese, okay, yeah. It's, it's, so the, the 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 minerals and uh, the kind of natural resources, they're kind of increasing Chinese presence within Congo already, so they would buy them up there. Um, there was a bit in the blog in which we managed to get into this place, this kind of Chinese comptoir where they sought the minerals and met this Chinese old man. And that was in Congo? That was in Congo. Yeah. But I, I suppose in China, on the other side, it's just traders buying Chinese stuff, like what we all use here for everything and yeah. send it back to all parts of Africa. But including all these sort of so-called African fabrics, you know, this oh, kind right, of... wow. Yeah, they're all made in China. I think it's made in China. Um, but this reminds me of, I read a really good book about the sugar, the British 
colonial sugar trade called Sweetness by mm. Sydney Mints. Really, really great book. And explores that link between the raw material, which is kind of taken from a colony or, or grown in a colony, and then the consumer products, which are then kind of sent back to the colony and yeah. sold back to it in this weird triangulated... Yeah, it's true, because the Absolutely. minerals come back. They all come back to Congo just inside these little foams. No, yeah, and I mean, in Congo, this is extreme. The absolute sadness there is that even tomatoes, the most basic things, are imported. Oh, really? Like, just because it's so infrastructurally broken um, that, you know, especially in the East, and it's there's such fertile lands, but there's just so little agriculture because yeah. it's so hard, I guess, partially, because to kind of in some capacity invest in the future like there's just not enough certainty even yeah um it's still you know there's still an area just it's, it's, it's just a civil war going on there yeah especially now again after we left um you know because the political conditions are just getting worse and worse we probably could have not made it anymore if we hadn't filmed a year ago really not this year we couldn't have gone no so well. when you say because because for me being a scaredy cat <laughs> like everything that you're writing about where you're just like I think at one point you're setting off some fireworks for the local village and then there's some like gunshots in the hills or whatever and then you get essentially arrested by the secret, secret service. service yeah but that that sort of arrest like this whole kind of all these boundaries between like being arrested being yeah. fined paying a bribe paying tax all these things are kind of very murky boundaries. Like so, so when you say that you couldn't make it now, it's more like you just couldn't get to the places you need to get to. It's very unstable now. So it's got to just to do with the, there's a lot of protests against the president not wanting to resign. He should have resigned more than a year ago, okay. I think, or like a long time ago. And he's November. like sort of not resigning like a lot of uh, people. And um, not just in Africa, for that, you know. <laughs> Any politicians will Any, yeah, yes. <laughs> like make dodgy coalitions. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that end up, but there's just huge unrest and instability, and, and with you know, for example, the fixer that we'd worked with two years in a row, um, who sort of you know we're still in touch with, and like he got kidnapped uh, a few weeks ago, wow, and and tortured and sort of by. I, he kind of suspected kind of rebel forces that have links to Rwanda, but he, he had also had a strong suspicion that um, that the government sort of knew about it or at least allowed it in some way, maybe as a kind of way of sort of... Because he's a guy that takes foreign journalists around that, who may ask difficult questions. Yeah, wow. Um, so that was quite also for us like quite a kind of... We also befriended, um, especially one particular woman who works in the UN that we met in Goma and she still goes there I think once a month and uh, she said yeah, you could have never done it now it's just gone so much worse so much harder what, so I'm just trying to think about this kind of weird mixture of personal danger and then responsibility you have to yeah the people that you end up interacting with mm -hmm. like how do you feel about using fixers who then get in trouble for yeah I, I mean the whole people. I think a lot of our work we sort of really jump into the middle of it and then have to continuously kind of negotiate situations 
ethically sort of you know how do we feel about working with these because essentially fixes they're kind of people that help you arrange something that also have a sense of what is safe and where is safe and mm. what can we do but they're also the people that kind of make it happen and then you know and occasionally need to probably pay some tax or but maybe it's not a tax maybe they're just sort of bribing people and so in some it makes it made me feel utterly bad when when we ended up in a situation in which like you clearly have to sort of bribe someone because you can't contributing to a system that's very rotten and you're just making it worse and you hear really horrible stories about that like mostly of camera crews like foreign camera crews like vice being one of the main sort of culprits that kind of you know they come in and they just get some fixes and they go like, well, look, we want to make a documentary about uh, cannabis use in the Congolese army. Or we want to make a documentary about child labor in these mines. And then these fixes go, all right, we can help you make a documentary about child labor. And then it turns out that they're just paying kids to go and work in the mines. So <laughs> Vice can go and film here. Um, and so, you know, they might know, they might not know. They're probably know that that's what's happening but then you know the next time someone else comes around even you know not just me as an artist but but people that like um perhaps have kind of different motivations or something but you know that the main expectation is just like there's a white guy he's going to pay loads of money for us you know whether he wants to film something or not and and obviously yeah that's something that you have to negotiate then when you're there and and we did pay people because we felt that they were part of this film so we wanted to kind of almost pay them as extras or we oh, so wanted you paid to the the what they i've forgotten the term but it's it means diggers right rather than miners yeah yeah, yeah in french um so we paid them we tried to pay them at what they would normally get paid for a day if especially if we would take their time yeah of course i mean you're kind of in the in the film it's quite interesting because you're kind of not necessarily filming the miners but you're kind of in their way sometimes or sometimes they're just standing and watching you or then you follow one of them and the others are kind of laughing yeah and they're kind yeah of playing with it and stuff yeah and that and and obviously there's much more of that interaction mm. that and i think this obviously a lot of a lot of stuff has has been edited out mostly in terms of not wanting to make a documentary, not yeah. not even trying to represent all the complexities in this place and keeping it quite focused, which is really important to us. But nevertheless, we, you know, my, our presence is is kind of disrupting that situation a little bit, um, yeah. and in some way, like we wanted to to make sure that that's kind of compensated for and acknowledge that. And so we also kind of paid uh, into the cooperatives of the miners which sounds a lot more democratic so than it really is. Well, so the way that these things are mined, so it's a coltan mine. So coltan is um, a mineral from which tantalum is made uh, or uh, extracted. And tantalum is a particular element that has been used to make capacitors smaller and capacitors is just a boring sort of electronic component and tantalum capacitors is literally in every sort of single smartphone laptop and wherever you need small electronics so the reason it's the reason it's in these things is because they're small so they need it allows capacitors to be smaller than like say ceramic capacitors or another form of capacitors and so you know that this is kind of something that um spiked a huge interest in tantalum and 
Congo you happen to have say 85 90% of the world's tantalum supply. So I think in like 2000 the launch of the PlayStation 2 was postponed because the price of tantalum I think like quadrupled or maybe like rose by tenfold or something, sure. right? And so the whole works started partially out of this interest of the way that we're kind of connected to these places, literally sort of electronically connected yeah. in some way. Um and therefore also connected to the circumstances and the context. Because the problem in the east of Congo is that this mineral plays partially a role in the ongoing conflict for the past like 20, 30 years. So like millions of people have died and even more people are displaced. And these conditions in in return then also become kind of virtualized to us. So, you know, these were like sort of partially the interests in setting out when we made this work. So we found ourselves then making the work in, in a mine, in a coal tan mine. And the way that coltan is mined is what they call artisanal mining, which is a sort of euphemism for, like, anyone with a shovel uh, and boots, maybe, or not. Um, so it's the opposite of kind of any form of industrial mining. And the miners are called creuseurs, and they just sort of dig. And the structures of ownerships of the mines are very complex and different also so in the mine that we were working in there's a cooperative that sort of runs this and all the miners are part of this cooperative but it doesn't necessarily mean they get paid they get paid only when they actually dig out the material so there's many days in which they're sort of you know digging but there's no like they're doing like exploration or something and yeah. they, they might not get paid or they might get paid say lunch or something um so there's you know it, it's hugely complex and and it's also not clear like whether industrial mining might be better because there's a lot of problems with industrial mining too. And but but it's very particular this kind of form of artisanal mining. Um, and is it just because it requires less infrastructure that mm. artisanal mining exists? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's you know it's just you know guys, kids sometimes, women too, with shovels or with like just steel kind of poles. And obviously the opposite, like artisanal mining. There are a few artisanal mines now in the east of Congo, mostly gold mines run by like huge Canadian companies. Yeah, not artisanal, you meant. Sorry, industrial mines. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so there's a few industrial mining uh, projects starting. But yeah, they require like huge investment up front, which is really hard because mm. the situation is still so fragile. There are also all these Chinese industrial mines, which are kind of interesting, wasn't it, in this Katanga film? I've forgotten the full name of it. But um, so, but then the Chinese people who buy the area, they set up a mine, but they bring all the miners from China. So oh, wow. on the other hand, they just kind of wall this area and it's become this tiny Chinatown in yeah. the middle of the landscape. I don't know if that's better or worse. I don't. I, I think they no both idea. have their downside. So exactly. the industrial kind of supply chains cause monopolies that don't necessarily kind of make for better conditions for people <laughs> on the ground. The industrial or the artisanal mining, it because of the very informal kind of supply chains, is also very vulnerable to any form of rebel groups or something to control any of these steps along the supply chains. Either the mine itself, but often not even the mine. Just you know, they may just well go and stand with an AK-47 along the road and stop a truck or a motorcycle and say, oh, "If you want to pass, you have to pay two hundred dollars, five hundred dollars." It's very hard, also, to to kind of check all of these conditions. But I think, therefore, for us to kind of <laughs> to jump in the middle of all these entanglements is a very important part of our work, often, also. 
and to continuously have to negotiate ourselves. But also because it's a it's an entanglement we're all completely part of. I mean, yeah. we didn't just read something in the newspapers and felt like, oh, that's an interesting conflict in this faraway <laughs> country. It's just, you know, we buy these things, we continuously think about it. Again, your phone is broken and you're faced with a forever dilemma of, I don't want to buy another one. I need this thing for <laughs> my life and work. But it's just like, I don't know, everything we use, are, actually our whole studio is, well, we have a physical studio, but I don't know what we do without computers, phones, etc. And yeah, these sure. things all, all come from there. So we are connected to this. We're bankrolling this place. But, so. but, the, but, but also you're Belgian, right? So yeah. It's like... There's obviously historical a historical thing. kind of, and my father grew up in Congo and in Rwanda, so in particularly oh. in that area. My grandfather like lived there for a long time. Is that, is that the eastern border then with yeah. Congo, is Rwanda? It's Rwanda and Burundi. So also a lot of the problems now really can be traced back to 1994 and the genocide in Rwanda and a lot of displaced people still. But yeah, that family history and, and beyond that family history, every every Belgian kid kind of grows up with some sort of idea of Congo. Yeah. Um, very skewed idea often also, <laughs> like facilitated actually. Like, what do you like, learn in school about the Congo? Um, in school, like, I don't know, I don't remember learning that much in school, but I remember this one particular museum very well, which is, they used, it used to be called the Congo Museum and it's now shut for renovation. But we, and I was so obsessed with that place and every Belgian kid like really grows up with it. Um, and the funny thing about, well, or the sad thing about it is that before it was closed down for renovation, I think in 2013, it's going to reopen in 2018. But before it was closed for renovation, there hadn't been like a major kind of overhaul of their presentation <laughs> since 1960. So like before the independence, so like generations of Belgians still wow. grew up with an image yeah, that yeah, was yeah. sort of the same image as it was, which is, you know, it was sort of with all good intentions trying to explain like what cacao is or what like but it was also full of sort of statues of you know kind of belly dressed African children and a white man in the middle kind of going bringing civilization to yeah, Africa yeah, yeah. It's like, well, there was civilization before white people came to <laughs> Africa and um, and so that those kind of things are very much I think a collective memory of a lot of uh, Belgian kids and 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 adults probably but also because my father lived there my grandfather had this had super eight millimeter eight millimeter camera um so i kind of grew up with a lot of little kind of films and watching films from there and so we used even part partially that archive in a work that we made a few months ago which is a kind of film collage that explores exactly this this sort of link between Africa and China and a lot of the work that we had been doing in China, a lot of the work that we did in, in, in Congo, the research. So it's kind of like using our own archive and then also using my grandfather's archive. You kind of pulled quite a lot of work out of this research. I went onto your mm. website, not for that long, but I just clicked through. And from what I could tell, you've had a 3D video games render of a Congolese mine. Yeah. You had, uh, yeah, that work which was... Seem to be montage of eight mil and other footage. And what else did I see? Have you There's got anything else from the research? The artificial minerals we've been making. Oh yeah, they're great. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. So, they, so how, what are they? You mine them from so tech. We would buy this um, bio. Actually, get hold of a few um, 
computers or hard drives later on. From The first one was from a bankrupt factory that lost all of their trade to China. So we went and bought everything in this kind of auction, of bankruptcy auction. And then we kind of reverse mined. Um, we broke all these electronics and took out all these materials from them. Because I think gold, coltan, aluminium, copper, the first one. And then we cast them back into this artificial mineral form. And I saw, maybe there's a blog or something, where you... How do, you, how do you get the gold out? There was something like you have to put it in acid or yeah. you have to... We learn everything on YouTube. It's kind of amazing how you can... Uh, you can yeah. just kind of teach yourself all these technical things constantly. Walter is kind of the master of that. But yeah, so we learned... There's all these YouTube tutorials of how to just get, get all these old... I don't know, how do you call them? The fingers? Cold fingers. Yeah, but they're on the thing... <laughs> The gold fingers are like this kind of gold-plated electronic connections. Yeah. Uh, okay. So. Oh, the things that are on the board, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So that's where you get the gold from. Or apparently processes too, but I've never really managed to do that. Pentium five, apparently. It's like <laughs> have some gold in. It. Like, but like a gram or something. Oh right? wow. But just okay. gold was cheaper at the time. I don't know if it's a gram, you but a lot. It in acid. But you have to indeed like use like really strong acids <laughs> to dissolve everything else. Which, we, we actually had an assistant that year who was a scientist and when he saw the contents of this acid he was like, I really don't think we should do this. <laughs> we just bought very strong masks and opened the windows. But we also used the coffee filter for some reason. I don't know, I just kind of do it. You that feels me. very Breaking Bad. Like yeah. He's <laughs> in these household things to do something terrible. Yeah, our studio could probably be... Yeah. <laughs> Good to have some good scenes of Breaking Bad, except for the money bit at the end. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but it's it's true that we made this first one while we were already over a year into doing this research, still looking for money to get to East Congo, still nowhere near it. And we were just really frustrated, and that was perhaps our first kind of step towards it, maybe materially. That was kind of sometimes said as a way of trying to dig our way to Kivu. Yeah, that's... A good point, actually, because I guess what you're talking about is how... What we were talking about earlier is how we're all literally connected to places like Congo and, mm. and places like China through the stuff that we own. But actually getting there, getting your physical bodies there takes it money and time. It is so and difficult. Mm. Money, time... The visa is extremely hard to get. Really? Yeah, you'd think... I don't know, you'd think it's not so hard because people don't want to go to a war zone. But yeah. actually, <laughs> it's one of the hardest... And it's depressingly expensive because it's, so, it's expensive. so broken. So even just, I mean, simple things like renting a 4x4 with a driver. Which you have to have. Which you have to have for a day. It's like $200 or something. And, you know, so you might end up renting it for 10 days. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I see what you mean. As in, because really there aren't many 4x4s that work and there's not many. It's not because like it's going dangerous. to India and yeah, living sure off, is. I don't know, 10 pounds a day. It's, yeah. the, the conditions are worse, but it costs... Like worse than it's cost more than being in London. And so, how, did you fund the whole project through one one foundation or one trust, or was it no, just funding little like, bits? Of yeah, little, little bits. bits, and so like a bit of. It's mostly public funding that we get first to do the research, first to do the first trip out there, and then kind of to do more research. And then this gallery that we showed it in now, they pitched in quite early on. But then I think. Especially with works like this, I think we end up putting at least ten thousand pounds in ourselves as well. But also, wow. a hell of a lot of favors. I mean, 
your brother ended up coming in as a quite hardcore producer. He worked extremely hard of it, on it and completely yeah, so he came with me voluntarily. On the oh, trip, wow. Which was kind of also maybe how the family thing sort of amplified that whole thing. Yeah. Um, so we also, this was also before we made that film with my grandfather's archive, but I took this archive of film with me to Congo and was watching it with my brother. Also to just think about that, yeah, just like, you know, what does it mean to be there in these colonial times? And, you know, my grandfather was a doctor, so he was, you know, he wasn't extracting kind of resources from there, but then it's still part of a system that, that yeah. sort of we now look at as, as hugely problematic and kind of asking that question, like, what did it really feel to be there? And especially also because in many ways, these kind of post-colonial conditions that exist now are very similar for the people there. I had people asking there, Congolese people asking me, when are the Belgians coming back? Because stuff was working then or something. And it's like, whoa, yeah, wait a minute, it doesn't work that way. But the fact that the post-colonial conditions or the conditions now are still so incredibly dire has a lot directly to do with, with the presence of all these natural resources and these mineral resources. Yeah, super interesting how that is kind of like this crazy blessing where Congo had a natural oh. resource which is, uh, what's the word, in demand, and then another one, and then another one. Exactly. And then it becomes this terrible curse because if you don't have the infrastructure to, well, kind of, I guess, protect it or like, mm. like keep the money within the state, then yeah. it just gets... And refine it, just also refine it. Yeah, okay, like, that's that, That's like, you know, that's, China has got a good example of that and the way that they have like these really clear laws around rare earth mining and, and limiting the export just in order to, yeah, to keep the capital and the kind of gains of these mineral resources within yeah. sort of refining and the kind of processing. and the, Whereas in Congo, that infrastructure doesn't exist at all. And a lot of people and parties benefit from that infrastructure never existing. So indirectly, we're all kind of benefiting from, from right. the conflict there and the instability, of course, because yeah. it's a lot sort of... There is this quote that we keep coming back to that's been just hugely inspirational for us throughout all of this, which is by David von Reibuck in his book Congo, History of the People. And he talks about how Congo indeed always had the thing that the industrial world wanted. So starting with ivory in times of, you know, billiard balls and piano keys in Victorian times, then with the invention of the inflatable tire, they had the rubber. Then in the Industrial Revolution, they had the copper. Later, uh, Cold War, they had uranium. Uh, obviously, in between, gold, diamond, all these kind of things. And now they have coltan. But it just seems like whatever are the sort of industrial desires in this side of the world, they always have the material needed to make them come true. And that's perhaps is, is this sort of um, terrible luck mm. that they had. Good luck, which is also a curse. I mean, with the, I mean, this, you might just not know this, but like, do, does that discovery of a new resource or a desired resource, is that always following an invention or is it that the discovery of the resource like fuels the... Like what can we do with this? Yeah, or, mm. or I guess I don't even actually just... No, that's a good question. The pneumatic tyre, like, it might have been a brilliant bit of tech, but without easy access to rubber, then you mm. can't produce it on a yeah. scale yeah. and no one can have it. So we still haven't severed this causal Yeah, that's a link good question. Because there's also the opposite in some way. There's the opposite with diamond, like the opposite sort of happened. Right, like where... Like the more which, you find the... Well, there was, I think, 
this moment in South Africa where they f- where they just found like a lot of diamonds, and then and there was like when this consortium was founded that like then became the Bears consortium that then later on invented this slogan of diamonds are forever and mm-hmm. and that and with with this kind of bit of clever marketing created this artificial scarcity around diamonds because when we all think diamonds are forever we're not we're never going to sell them like we shouldn't mm-hmm. sell our diamonds you know like they, they kind of mean something and um so this sort of strange emotional attachment that is designed in order to to kind of keep all these diamonds <laughs> off the market yeah sure because but the because the point is that there's nothing special about diamonds and there's a tons of them. And the only reason why they're worth so much is because of this artificially created scarcity. And there's been a lot written about, like, have oh, you ever really? tried to... Yeah, there's these really beautiful articles on The Atlantic. Since the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, I think, like, every decade, like, they write, like, a really long, really good article about have you ever tried to sell a diamond, for example. And so it's almost the opposite of what he's saying. It's about... It's about we find loads of these like these resources, and then all of a sudden, like whoa, whoa, but there's too much of it. Whoa, now yeah. we need to protect our kind of monopolies and interests. And uh, this is a very badly remembered thing, but it's like when Portugal went to South America. I think they found loads of silver, and that's when silver was the standard for uh, currency and trading. And they discovered it, and they tried to hide it from the rest of the world, and they. But we're buying up loads of stuff and like spending like crazy, and then eventually people realised or word got out that what had actually happened was that there was loads more silver, and it caused a massive crash. Mm. And that's why you have the well, that's why you then had the gold standard because mm. people just wouldn't trust silver anymore. Yeah, and I guess diamonds are weird because there is no, they've never been linked to anything other than like a luxury trade. There's a lot of industrial applications, I guess. Oh, yeah, no, that's like, a good point. It's not yeah. a bit quiet, but yeah, that's yeah. not as glamorous. Yeah, and neither are they that expensive. Because it's just cheaper quality diamond, but yeah, yeah the, the idea of like an optical kind of you know luxury, yeah, it's only this sort of strange emotional, very artificially created thing. So with uh, with it with Congo and Belgium, is this like, do you just get these kind of? Is your so when you're thinking about like supply chains, your immediate thought is something like a place like Congo, whereas for for a British person, it might be like the Caribbean islands, or it might be. Mm. like different parts of Africa is is that where your kind of imagination leads you? Well I think it came after doing a lot of work in China around labour and, and factories in China and sort of maybe in a, in a way that we're also connected to these labour conditions in factories in China through just any gimmick and gadget that we buy but I do think that as a Belgium Congo is more in your consciousness yeah that's what I mean, yeah. in general so how do you feel about that, Rotar? Are you drawn into it? or? I I mean, kind it's of, obviously interesting on its own terms. Yeah, it? I kind of was to begin with. I mean, it was so much also because it was part of Tur's family history. and um, But I think I never gave Congo much thought before I met him and before we started. But then I also, um, you know, found a lot of my own perhaps biography in my own life in there as well, not just talking of this kind of use of these objects, but um, being Israeli in Congo is a pretty tripping experience. They have this kind of obsession with this country for some reason. Um, that also, apparently, there were all these Israeli commando uh, soldiers going to train them after the independence and all sorts of very, very dodgy deals. But um, it sort of left the Congolese with this 
extreme love of Israel, which I found very strange. I mean, when I crossed the border, literally everybody came out of the office to shake my hand. I've never experienced anything like this. It was. And had you heard about this before you went, or is it? No, just I, I had happened? no idea it was going to happen. And people will come up to me and say, "You are the sister of Jesus. I can't believe wow. I met you." And which was just really, really kind of a bizarre, bizarre experience for me. So is it? Is it like a mixture of religious and historical stuff? Is it a Christian thing? It's very much a religious thing. There was yeah, this okay. prophecy that kept coming back that quite a few people told me. Um, I never heard anything about it before. But So they had this prophecy that the United States is going to have a black president, then there's going to be a woman president. Already prophecy kind of flawed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At the time I was like, wow, this might happen. And this woman president was going to drop Israel. And at that point, all the Arab countries are going to attack it, which will cause all the Congolese to get on the planes and come over to the Middle East with (laughs) AK-47s to set it right. Wow, that's yeah. to save Israel. Yes, what and a would, twist in the plot. And is that like the I end mean, of days kind of situation? Yeah, and everyone told me about that as like the best story that's just going to happen and it's going to be this incredible thing. <laughs> and I was just thinking, oh my God, it's not complicated <laughs> so, enough. But this does bring an interesting, because for both of you then, in, in you're in Congo, you're having conversations <laughs> that you <laughs> ever tell that you probably didn't expect you'd be having, but like, how do you, what do you say like when, People ask for the Belgians to come back or what mm. people are saying about Israel being, you know... The you just listen. Also, you know, I, I don't define myself as Israeli so strongly. Sure. That was kind of a, a strange thing as well, the kind of... The importance of that to some people, where for me it's such a kind of minor thing that happened to me. But <laughs> not, not necessarily my core identity. So. Yeah. Well, I think we've both... I haven't yeah, lived, have lived. I haven't lived in Belgium for half my life, and you haven't be, lived in Israel for half your life. So that that I don't necessarily feel a very strong. Sure. But obviously there is a link because I've grown up with these things, and and I come from a place that everyone seemed to have a very strong opinion of, and kind of strong links one way or another. Yeah. So you can never ever escape that country. Um, well, in its own, obviously, very very different way to Congo. Like you just can't untangle the historical meaning of Israel or something and no. it's the same with Congo there's no way to like disentangle the colonial it's true form. but I suppose when you have these conversations you're just having them like you don't really yeah, sure. make conclusions or you just talk to people and it's just and you listen I think that's really yeah, important exactly. as well like you just end up listening a lot to these stories and, and because also, you're there but it's it also kind of ties the connection in a stronger way and one of the things we always said about this work from the offset before we even went there is about how we're interested in how these people dig the material that allows for virtual worlds but then mm. they are almost living in a virtual world to us because we can never see them we can never access this place we never see it anywhere but then you go there and you meet them and they stop being virtual and they are totally connected to your life somehow and one of the weirdest thing for me that happened was we tried to work with another fixer. It didn't quite work out before we met Adolf, the guy that helped us at the end and became a great friend who we love. And this fixer just told me this story about how he he participated in a film by an Israeli documentary crew about the Rwanda genocide. And then he flown to Israel and he was this huge celebrity there and did this rock concert in front of like thousands of people. And I was like, yeah, yeah, right. Because also sometimes people tell these big stories. 
and there's not really a lot of internet connection there, funnily enough. So only when I got home, I could like, okay, let's let's check out the story. <laughs> and it was true. And it was just so crazy and bizarre that I would bump into this man in, yeah. in this middle of war zone. And he, yeah. When you go to Congo, you guys, I guess, lock into the, it's this other network of journalists and documentary makers mm -hmm. and fixers and yeah. translators and four by fours with drivers. Like there's a whole other, much smaller, I'm assuming, network of like facilitating foreign interest in the Congo. Absolutely. Mm. So in a weird way, you inevitably met this <laughs> yeah, guy true. who's like, you know, yeah, this totally. Israeli documentary. Totally true. Yeah. And that's also, also mostly, in some way, that was a really frustrating experience mm. of being in Goma because Goma is sort of conflict capital okay. and that's where the UN is. And, you know, in the kind of long history of Congolese uniques, Congo always had like a UN presence or like the biggest UN like um, presence called MONUSCO there and also then I think a few years or months ago it was the first time that the UN the blue helmets were kind of not just on a defensive mission but they could go and actually go on the offense and so there's like you know all these like very dubious firsts and and records <laughs> that Congo sets <laughs> and being in Goma is just it's really kind of traumatizing in that way because you're trapped in a city which is like so many kind of white people and so many people you know like us journalists and other sort of other tourists and a very kind of particular breed of uh, adventure seeking white men really yeah yes. or you know or or just i don't know volunteers that come and volunteer for um i need to yeah some ngos sure and and I mean, okay, so in, in the case of Coltan, again, I met with, with one NGO in particular, which is called the Enough Project. And the Enough Project is an NGO mostly funded by celebrity money in America. So I kind of believe it's like Ben Affleck and I think also George Clooney. And they're really trying to do a lot of good there. And one of the things that they did was to put this idea and also the word of conflict mineral on the agenda. Yeah. And so... It's kind of flawed because the con the mineral itself isn't the source of the conflict. Um, yeah, and so it's not a fight about coltan or, or exactly. Or no, it just plays a role in this kind of incredibly broken infrastructure. And so, the solution isn't going to be geological. The solution is going to be political in some way. Yeah. But so then, what happened is that they got pushed it up on the agenda so much that it became part of the Dot Frank Act. And the Dot Frank Act is this like bit of legislation that Obama signed in the wake of the financial crisis for stock market regulation, right? So it's mostly about like let's make sure this doesn't happen again. But then Section fifteen hundred and two in the Dot Frank Act speaks specifically of conflict minerals from Congo. So it's kind of weird that like wow. we're trying to regulate the American stock market, and it then pinpoints like towards Congo. And so that particular bit of legislation, it says something like that all of the stock market noted companies like Intel and Apple and uh, right on the American stock markets, they need to do that due diligence when it comes to their supply chains. And so that means that they can't be connected to this conflict in Congo, which is impossible to prove because these supply chains are so incredibly murky and complex yeah. and so many steps. So the result of that piece of legislation was that all these companies just kind of pull away from anything that means Congo. Mm. And it just made it a lot worse and on the ground because it meant that like all of a sudden this kind of really fragile bit of economy collapses even further. And many of these sort of artisanal miners just ended up in the arms of gangs because or rebel groups because it just, you know, that became that kind of their livelihood. And so... But how did they... 
I think maybe I read they they started smuggling the minerals out. Well, yeah, because then the few people that could still kind of get the minerals across the border. So like all of a sudden, these companies would start buying coltan from Rwanda and Burundi. And there's hardly any coltan mines, if right. any, in Rwanda and Burundi. So it just comes from Congo. And the people that do get across the border, that tend to be these kind of exactly the armed gangs that tend to be the problem. So in many ways, it's just one illustration about like how us as Westerners <laughs> trying to help just often make the situation worse. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, some of these people that I met of some of these NGOs, they're there in order to prove to, to prove that it does still work, right? Because they can't go back to George Clooney and Ben Affleck and say like, sorry, Ben, <laughs> we just wasted your money. And so, and it's really sad. So you meet people there, they go like, no, we're here to like, you know, do a bit of research to, to make sure that everyone knows that Dot Frank like has been good for the region. And so, yeah, you just meet an awful lot of people and you think like, whoa, just, you know, just stay away. Let's all, let's all stay away. Those people who have this very clear agenda what do you think they made of you guys equally i think probably many people thought that be a lot easier if we would we would have stayed away (laughs) (laughs) and and maybe even better if we would have stayed away um you know i mean from the outset at least i think we didn't make ourselves any illusions that we whatever we were doing that would make it any better yeah. yeah, solve it, solve it for anyone or yeah. Hashtag helping, yeah. so to speak. <laughs> we tried not to exploit or damage or be very conscious or kind of at least try to be as aware of our actions, but we never claim to be saving anybody. Yeah, and I think that honestly was also really important in every of these interactions. So when we tried to get access to the mine, we were very clear up front about like, well, we're artists, we're making a film, we want to make yeah. a film in the mine, and we want to do this, and we want to set off this fireworks that we made specifically in China, and um, you know. So I think the reasons for people to let us do what we did, um, I can't, I can only speculate, but you know that it wasn't because they thought we would. I don't know, show the world yeah. what it was like, because we're not showing the world what this is like, we're showing such a kind of small glimpse of something that we ourselves kind of created and staged in many ways, which was really important for us that it took place within this particular situation, but, but the, also we create that situation. And it was interesting the way it was shot with this, it's not quite a fisheye lens, but a very wide angle lens. It's got that first person shooter computer game style. And it's it's the opposite of the yeah documentary style because is it on a steady cam maybe yeah so the the camera movements are really important because we felt like we felt that our presence in the film was really important and we wanted to make that we wanted somehow that you could feel our presence through the camera work rather than being in the film ourselves and filming ourselves. Mm. I think there's a, the odd glimpse of my hand. When that's I the only time and, you see your body, yeah. Yeah, when I try and like ju- make a jump that was a little bit too far. Yeah, and, and watching it, I immediately thought of computer games and how it, it goes from kind of first-person shooter to at points where you're kind of following the miners, that kind of third-person angle that's on computers, mm. they're following behind the head of the protagonist. Yeah. And then very occasionally... You, Oh, maybe there's only one shot where it feels, st- or the end shot where it kind of feels static. But it, the the cameraman, I mean, you have just climbed up to like get a view, and that, and it sort of ends at this long yeah, where you exactly. see the smoke. Yeah, and the goats. Yeah, uh, yeah, because then you can hear the goats. So that's also something is that 
I thought was great was that it starts off and you're in a ravine that's been cut by the miners, I assume. Mm. But it's kind of quite nice. Mm. It's very cultural, too. right? Yeah, it's very but it's also not space. muddy or... And then slowly elements like people digging or mud or people shouting or are kind of introduced and eventually you realise that you're in this kind of scar in the middle of the of what what would be farmland because there you can hear the goats right at the end yeah and it's it's i mean the 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 nice thing was that as opposed to a documentary there's no attempt to like show you the worst stuff or something yeah no yeah. i think that's always quite important in some way also that we sort of explore these entanglements but also we never kind of look for the extreme either the extreme sort of solution or the extreme sort of worst cases yeah. this is similar to what we were doing in china when we were working in a factory it was really important to find a factory that represented contemporary manufacturing conditions in china and so it's really easy to find a factory in china where people <laughs> yeah. sit sit on the floor still for example okay. right they'll sit on the floor and the conditions are really bad um but we didn't want that we sort of wanted and the same with the mine like we don't we yeah we're also not going to look for and neither am i sort of brave enough to go and look for the conflict or to kind of go and it's not yeah. at all my intentions to in any way represent the kind of complexity because i couldn't you know i'm only like scratching the surface and we've been there twice for prolonged periods and over a few years times and been doing a lot of research and talking to a lot of people but even then like, who am i to speak for these people in any way yeah. um it does make me think about so we've got baby nico in the studio with us yeah do you think you would now th go i mean i know you said literally you couldn't because the conflict has got really bad but would you when you're thinking about work now do you start thinking oh maybe we shouldn't be mixing acids in our studio or maybe we shouldn't go to, <laughs> go to a war zone to film a film? well the reason i didn't go when he was when the filming took place is because i was quite far along pregnant ah, with her okay. So the original plan of both of us going to make the film like we did with all of our other works was impossible and that's why Ted's brother replaced me. Um, but yeah, I suppose we should. I mean, I did a lot of quite dangerous chemical work when I was pregnant with her as well that I was like very flippant about, but now I'm a bit guilt-ridden by, so... But I don't know, I mean... Yeah... It, you, you can't not think about it, but mm. <laughs> I guess we also can't completely just sterilize our lives, on the other hand. Yeah. She can come to Congo one day. Yeah, we'll see about that. <laughs> It'll just one take day. a while. Yes. One day. <laughs> so that was Revital and Tur. Thanks to those guys for taking part in the podcast. If you want any more information about the Bad Vibes Club or you want to listen to older episodes of the podcast or talks or events that we've done before, then go to badvibesclub.co.uk. We're running a reading group at Flat Time House in London as well. So um, get in touch at info at badvibesclub.co.uk if you want to be part of that. And have a happy Christmas. Happy Christmas.